get this going. What is the greatest announcement you have ever heard? The greatest declaration, something happening, something going on. What's the best piece of news that you've ever come across? Though there are probably several valid answers for me, there's one that comes to my mind more distinctly, and it happened several years ago at this point. In a fall day, it was very humid, and it was actually warmer than normal, and it actually happened in Cleveland, Ohio on November 2nd. And what happened, under some very bright lights, after a back-and-forth battle, a few blown plays, some questionable coaching decisions... And a rain delay, a man by the name of Michael Martinez hit a weak ground ball to a man named Chris Bryant, who fielded the ball, threw it to first base, Anthony Rizzo caught the ball, and the sweet words rang out, Cubs win! Cubs win the World Series! You see, I know that that is probably a deep-seated boo, but the truth is that as a Cubs fan... We've been disappointed for the last 108 years. And finally, finally, the Cubs were able to pull it off. They won the World Series. And when I think of announcements, I think of that. I think of this piece of good news that's so exciting. It's like, yes, I've been waiting for that. Thank you. I think of the news that is shouted joyfully because this proclamation is true and it actually affects My life, actually the whole next day, all day in school, all we did was watch the Cubs parade. It was so fun. I loved it. And the truth is that though you may not be a baseball fan like me, I'm sure there's been a moment or two in your life where you've heard an announcement and been filled with joy, been filled with happiness, gratitude, thanksgiving because of this piece of news. And it makes you want to share it with the people around you. It makes you want to communicate it to others. This Christmas season, I pray that that would be each of our experiences with the good news of Jesus, of what he has done for us, that that would ooze out of us, that that would come from our hearts. If you're just joining us, we've been working through a sermon series on Advent, on the arrival of Jesus, focusing on just how incredible it is that God would become man. First week, we talked about how great our need for a Savior was, and that that Savior had to come from outside of ourselves. We were insufficient to save ourselves. The next week, we looked at multiple passages, all the way from the beginning of the Old Testament to pretty much the end of the Old Testament, of how this one person continued to be prophesied that he was going to come. And he was going to deliver the people and he was going to save them. And he was going to do the work that we needed done for us. Well, this week, my title is The Announcement. The Announcement. And I want to read from Luke chapter 2 on what God's announcement, what his message to all of us is. And though this happened over 2,000 years ago, this is still an announcement to you Tonight, just as it is to me. So flip your Bibles open to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And I will pray as we enter. Lord, we are dependent upon your word. If your word is errant, if there is um, anything that is incorrect in your word, our 
truth falls apart. And so, God, we believe that your word is infallible, Lord, and it will guide us in the right direction. We ask that you would awaken our hearts to see that, to submit to that, even when it maybe challenges the way that we feel or think or tend to believe, Lord, would we submit to your word. Be with us tonight. Let your word speak out of the book of Luke. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In Luke chapter 2, so we're going to start in verse 1 to set the scene. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered. Everyone went back to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is also called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, soon to be wife or wife, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to have to give birth. She was going to have the baby. And she did give birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Joseph and Mary, Jesus' earthly parents, had to travel a distance of probably about 90 miles on foot or slash mule, which they couldn't have both ridden it, Um, 90 miles while Mary was pregnant. This is a long journey that was hard, and I would not want to walk 90 miles for anything, and I definitely would not want to walk with my wife 90 miles while she is pregnant. That would be terrible. That would be so hard for her. She's not pregnant, by the way. (laughs) But the people were required to go. They were forced to go because of the rule of the Roman world. And the reason that this emperor, that Caesar Augustus, called this census to count the people was really because he just wanted to tax them as much as he possibly could. His purpose was count all the people and make sure they're paying me enough money. That's his goal. But what's incredible to think about is that, as we read last time in Micah 5, there was a prophecy that the Deliverer, the coming Messiah, was supposed to come from this little town called Bethlehem. So Mary and Joseph don't live in Bethlehem, but they travel to Bethlehem. And God is over that. He is sovereign over that moment to bring them to this town where the Deliverer, the Savior, is to be born. To get back to the story, let's continue in verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. What was the shepherd's response? What was the shepherd's response? Fear. They were filled with fear. That gives us our first point. Number one. God's glory causes fear. God's glory causes fear. When I was in high school, I had an English teacher who loved leading trips of students and even adults overseas. And she would frequently go to England. That was like one of her favorite spots to go. And so she would take this group of people to England and they would travel and they would sightsee and they would check out all the tourist destinations. But Time and time again, what was probably the most impactful part of the trip was actually when they visited the churches. 
When they went to the churches, that was the most impactful. And it wasn't because they were ornate, which they were. They were beautifully built. They were, many of them were older than this country, like hundreds of years old. These beautiful architectural monuments. But what was impactful is that when they entered into the church, they weren't allowed to speak. You couldn't talk when you'd enter the church. There's no joking. There's no snickering. There's not even casual conversation. You can't just carry on a normal conversation. You would walk into the church building and you were silent. And the thing is, is that when we are silent, that provides room for reverence. Silence builds room for true reverence. Now, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't talk in church. If that were the case, I would have already broken that suggestion. (laughs) But in the age that we live in, in this world of the digital, of the immediate, of the if it's not happening right now, it's not worth pursuing. Or if it won't reward me right now, it's pretty much worthless. That's the age that we live in. We miss out on the whole idea of reverence. What tends to happen to us is that we just add more and more things to our lives. More hobbies, more sports, more activities, more friends, more meetings, more gatherings. All these things. And many of those are very good things. But what it leaves is zero space to think about who God is. We we must have this moment, this time, this sacred spot to ponder who God is and what he's done. And if we don't, we are missing out. You and I will probably not have a moment on earth like the shepherds experienced in our passage. You probably will not have this angel descend into your bedroom in the middle of the night, shining, illuminating the whole room brighter than the sun. But we have a different form of this glory of the Lord. We can behold the glory of the Lord through this word. And we don't think about that that way very often. We think, oh, this is a book. And many of us think this is probably a better book than the other books. But do we really think about the words of Scripture as the same glory of God that shone on that night in the field, that illuminated the sky the same way it illuminates our hearts? When we sit with the Scriptures, we encounter the same God who makes mountains quake and seas tremble And shines light in the midst of darkness. If you don't think you've ever encountered this, I have a challenge for you. Grab your Bible. Make whatever arrangements you need to with your siblings or with your parents or with your friends or certainly with your phone. And find a space that you can go and be undisturbed for an hour. And bring your Bible and a notepad in a pen, and just sit. Don't talk to anyone. Maybe this is in a closet somewhere. Maybe it's in your bedroom. Maybe it's in the woods. Go where you will not be interrupted by someone and just write and read. And you don't have to have a, a reading plan that you follow. In fact, I actually almost encourage not to in this moment. And just ask that the Lord would help you see him. 
It is an experience that many of us can go years naturally without ever having that. And maybe some of you are listening. You're like, yeah, I've never done that. It's never, never happened for me. But what you will probably find is there are levels of thoughts, desires, intentions, sins in your heart that have never surfaced until that moment. Because what happens is when we have a trauma in our life, when we sin in a way that we're really ashamed of, all we want to do is just push that aside and just keep going. Keep adding things to our life, building all of these things around so we don't have to think about what we've done. And in this moment where you sit before the Lord and before His Word, it's going to make you feel very bare. (laughs) There's nowhere to hide. And that's the perfect setup to beholding the glory of the Lord. The reason is because when we're in that moment where we feel and recognize that we are very unglorious, we see how much greater God's glory is. It provides the proper contrast that we need. We must encounter that. And when we do, that is when true confession, that is when true forgiveness, that is when true restoration happens within our hearts when we are just alone with the Lord without anything in the way. And I will tell you, in my Christian walk, those have been some of the sweetest moments of my life. And they haven't always been after an hour of sitting. Sometimes it's 10 minutes. But the moments where everything is in front of the Lord and in front of me, and I can just be so thankful that he would still save a sinner like me, that is when the, the presence of the Lord fills our hearts, causes us to tremble with fear and rejoicing. This natural response to the discrepancy of glory and not glory is seen in the shepherds. It's seen in our passage here. They were filled with fear because even the messenger of God was spectacular. He was unlike anything they'd ever seen. A human being could not live after being in the presence of God. And we see an Old Testament story of this. Moses, who gets to see a glimpse of the backside of God, and he leaves the mountaintop of Mount Sinai, and his face is glowing. <laughs> you imagine, like, someone has a, like a flashlight coming out of their face, right? That's Moses. They had, he actually had to cover his face because it was too bright. Moses had a reflected glory. Because that's how bright our God is. And when it shines on things, it reflects it. Just the same way that the sun is so bright that when it bounces off the moon, it looks like the moon is luminous. But it's not. It's just reflecting the glory of the sun. Likewise with the angels. They dwell forever in the presence of God. That is all they know. Sitting in front of God. Beholding God. And so when they come, even this reflected, this residual glory fills the whole sky with light. And it causes what in the shepherds? Fear. That is how powerful this God is that is sending this angel to deliver a message. But we should be so grateful to God 
that he's not just a fear-invoking being. He's much more than that, which leads to our second point. But let's keep reading in verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Number two, God's meekness, God's meekness causes comfort. Meekness is humility. God's willing submission. God's meekness causes comfort. So much packed in these verses that we so quickly just rifle through. Maybe as, even as I started reading, you just kind of checked out because you're like, I've heard this every year. Let's start though. Let's dive in a little bit. First words that the angel says to the shepherds, fear not, fear not. The angel sees the shepherds in fear, noticing this heavenly being filling the whole land with light and the angel compassionately says fear not i'm going to bring you into a window of my life here this has happened many times dozens of times in emma and i's marriage over the past three years i'm sure it's going to happen many 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 more times here's a scene we'll be watching a show eating dinner maybe doing chores getting ready for bed And all of a sudden, some noise, some creak, some crick, some crack, like something happens, whether it's inside the house or in the basement, it sounds like, or whatever, some just noise. And Emma's first thought is, what was that? (laughs) And me, I'm like, I'm stubborn and selfish. And so my first instinct is, it's nothing, like, I don't want to deal with that. I don't, I don't, it'll be okay. It'll be okay. Emma's just being attentive and I'm thankful for that. My instinct is to brush it off and say there's no reason to be thinking of that because it's not a real thing. And so, though this isn't really fear, we'll call it that. This moment of fear, the way that I'm responding is just saying, well, stop being afraid, okay? You see how that's not a very good response because in in the moment of fear, what a person wants to hear is not, oh, well, you probably shouldn't be afraid. It's, oh, here's why you shouldn't be afraid, right? If I'm just to tell Emma... No, stop. It, there's, no, there's no noise. That noise didn't happen. That's not comforting. But if I say, okay, I'll go look at that noise and I'll come back and tell you the reason that there's nothing to be afraid of, that's a lot more comforting, right? The angels are a lot better at processing the fear than I am at times. They don't just say, don't be afraid. They give a reason why the shepherds should not be afraid. What's the reason? It's that Jesus, who was dwelling in heaven, would come in the form of a baby. He would take on meekness. The one with all authority showed himself to be submissive under everything else. He was, because he was willing to take on something that was unnatural to him, humanity, now by faith he allows us to take on something That's unnatural to us, godliness. And we can't have that without Christ taking our 
place in becoming like us. And this news is the good news that causes great joy, and it is the news for all the people. And to defend this claim, this truth, the angel says, here's a promise. Here's a test. You can test my words by this truth. Go into the city, and you will find a baby, and he will be sitting like this. He tells the shepherds where to find the baby and how he will be found. Not dressed in royal robes, but in swaddling clothes. Not on a royal purple mattress, but in a manger, on straw, in a feeding trough. This is how the king of glory will be found. The God of all has become a child of nothing. As soon as the angel makes this announcement, the text says in verse 13 that suddenly, suddenly, immediately, as soon as he says you're going to find this baby, a whole army of angels appear and they, sh- they fill the sky and they sing praises to the heavenly host praising God. And this is a moment that, that we miss out on because we live in the 21st century in America. But what was happening in that moment was something that was long prophesied, long awaited, long foretold. Because over 500 years before this moment, in Ezekiel chapter 10, God's presence was, was dwelling in a temple that Solomon had made. And it was there. And one day, God removed his presence from the people. It wasn't for no reason. It was because the people continued in their sin, in unrepentant sin. They were saying, we don't trust you, God. We don't care for you, and we don't care that you care about us. And so God says, I will leave you, and you can do your own thing. God removes his presence from the temple 500 years ago. And it would not ever come back until this moment, when the angels descend in a little field outside of Bethlehem, where God returns. And he says, I have come to be with man. How amazing is it that God, despite our sin, would still move towards us? Because Israel had given no reason for God to come back. Israel was continuing in their sin. Likewise is the same with us. We give no reason for God to love us. We give no reason for God to care for us. And yet he does, and he has demonstrated it in sending his son. Continuing our passage, we'll find our third point. God's movement causes action. God's movement causes action. In light of God's glory coming down, in light of his nature becoming approachable, not just this distant God, but now this physical human being, where do you go with that? To personalize it, when you read your, your Bible in the morning and you read something really good, what do you do with it? What do you, how do you take it with you? How do you think about it? I think we can all agree the, the right answer is not do nothing. <laughs> but what is something? What are we supposed to do? Well, we can gain an insight from the shepherd's response to the angel's proclamation. Look at verse 15. When the angels went away... They shout this chorus, and they leave. They went into heaven. Immediately the shepherds said to one another, 
let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And so they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known to them the saying that had been told them concerning this child. The shepherds hear the word of God, and they go. They move. They step. They walk. They move in accordance to what God says. And they trust God enough to live in a way that correlates to what they say they believe. They trust God enough that that their actions support what they say they believe. There's lots of applications that we can draw from this. And maybe you can discuss some of these in small group about how God's word should change how we handle our worry or our fears or our anxieties or our stresses or our sins. When we go to God's word, it gives us a way forward. It gives us direction. And often we need help in seeing that and pointing that out for other people. That's the purpose of small groups. (laughs) It's to be encouraged in the steps you are to take according to God's word. You see, for the, for the shepherds, instead of now watching the sheep, they go to find the Savior. And for us, instead of filling our time with good, but ultimately lesser things, now we prioritize, we cherish the thing that is most important, which is Jesus. It's the Lord and his people. Notice another thing in the text, the manner in which they go. Does it say slowly? No, look at verse 16. And they went with haste. They sped down the road. They said, we got to put all of our eggs, get all of our ducks in a row, and we're gone. We have to go see this Jesus. They got what they needed, and they did not delay, and they left. And I fear that too many of you students in this room, even tonight, are slow in responding to God's direction. And we, we feel that as long as we somehow kind of mosey our way along the right direction, we're, we're doing enough, we're doing the right thing. If we find ourselves showing up on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings, sharing in discussion group, even praying, reading your Bible, out of a sense of obligation, out of a sense of just duty, of just, I need to do this because it's good, if that's all that's there, You are missing something. And we must stop and think about this because God does not need that. The Apostle Paul argues this in Acts chapter 17, verse 24. He says, The God who has created the heavens and the earth is not served with human hands as though he needed anything. Is God's wealth so little that he actually needs your tithe, your offering? Is God's strength so tiny that he actually is dependent upon your service? Is God's ability so weakened that he needs us to supply him? Is God lacking millions of angels in heaven right now worshiping him that he actually needs to hear you say You are God. He doesn't need that. He doesn't. 
But he still calls us to do it. Martin Luther once said this, our thoughts of God are far too human. (laughs) We think of God as if he's one of us. But God does not need us, but he desires us. And he asks us to sacrifice things in our life because he knows what is ultimately best for us. And he wants that. He wants that for you. He wants what is best for you. The remembrance of God's infinite power and might and wealth and glory does something for us. It provides the proper backdrop of how incredible it is that this powerful, almighty, all-sufficient God would enter into time, that he would associate with pitiful humanity. (laughs) We had nothing to offer him. God was not served by coming to this earth, and yet he took on flesh for you and me to demonstrate how great his love and affection was for us. God has moved towards us. And like the shepherd's response, it ought to stir us to action. What then, you ask, should that action look like? Well, to sum it in one word, worship. Point number four, God's presence causes worship. God's presence causes worship. Once you see in our passage, there are three possible responses to God's presence. And what's interesting is that when a claim like this goes out, when a truth claim that, that God is absolutely powerful, the gospel is a great example of this. You need a savior. Jesus is the savior. That's a truth claim. And that truth claim leaves you, you have to choose one of two options. You either accept it or you reject it. There's no indifference. Because even if you say, I'm going to think about it, or I'll get to it later, or maybe another time, you're rejecting it. Do you see that? You either accept it or you reject it. And so there is one thing that cannot happen when we encounter God's presence. And that is nothing. <laughs> it can't be nothing. That is impossible. In these last verses, we find three responses to what God has done. One is clearly bad. One is good. And I would argue the last one is the best. Let's read from verse 18. Shepherds arrive. They tell the people, this company of people, what they've heard. And all who heard it, this is probably, Jerry, Jerry, (laughs) Mary, Joseph, family members, relatives, maybe bystanders, people in the town. It's a small town. There's There's an assembly of people here. And they tell all these people, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary, in contrast, treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as had been told them. Three types of worship from these people. First, the group of people who heard it and wondered. And these people would have responded with things like, hmm, or that's pretty interesting, or... Oh, that's an interesting story. Oh, hmm, that's fascinating. Or, yeah, I'd love to hear more about that some other time, but I'm not really interested right now. 
Right? There's this intrigue. This, this, oh, that's kind of an interesting story. In the same way that even though we live in the world that we live in today, we're kind of intrigued by the idea of a Jedi who can control the Force, or Harry Potter who can cast spells, or a superhero can fly. And we don't actually imagine ourselves to be able to do those things, but this idea of a world that, that's supernatural is kind of intriguing to us. Like, yeah, that'd be helpful if I had a superpower, right? Those are the people who just wonder. They're entertained. And that's truly what their worship is. It's a worship of entertainment. It's not a worship of God. It's a worship of being fascinated or intrigued or entertained, but not of bowing down their knees to the Lord. And that's the problem with wonder, is that it can become a substitute for reverence. Wonder can become a substitute for worship because it is a worship of stories or ideas. It's not a worship of God or an eagerness to know Him. Some of you here tonight need to stop wondering about God and instead submit to Him. The next response is that of Mary. Mary, in contrast with the people, treasured all of these things in her heart. She hears this good news. She knows it's true. She delights in it. She's not entertained. She's delighted. She's treasuring. She hears that God has taken on flesh and she treasures. She's not content to merely be contained with wondering. Some of you here tonight need to treasure the work that the Lord has done. You've heard it. You've been in Sunday school your whole life. You've been the last 78 Wednesday nights. But you don't treasure the work that Jesus has done. You don't delight in that above everything else. You don't think and ponder and pray just how miraculous it is that this announcement was made. I just plead with you. You are missing if you don't treasure it. God has more for you. The Savior did come. The King has arrived. And when you trust in this King as Lord and Savior, you are given all things in the heavenly places. That's the good news. There's one more response, and then we'll close. One more way that God's presence causes worship. Look at verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. They've seen and heard that which God has done. They know it in their hearts. And so they go. And they go in shouts of joy, proclaiming to each other and no doubt to others what God has done. So it starts with the treasuring. It starts with a knowing, with a delighting in what God has done. But it moves out. Some of us here tonight need to Share this joy, the joy that the Savior has come with other people. So your walk with the Lord, even though many of you it begins with the Bible in the morning, praise God for that, shouldn't stay there. It should go out to your school, to your friend group, to your siblings. That's a group that's really hard to share the joy of the Lord with. To your parents, it should be known about you that you treasure the Lord. And though we do this very imperfectly, God is slowly but increasingly transforming our hearts to look more like His. And it should come out in the way that we speak with friends, the way that we respond to parents, the way that we work 
a job, the way that we care about school, the way that we think, the way that we act, all of this should point to the God who has done miraculous things, not just in sending this King Jesus as a baby, but in changing your heart to love new things. This is the announcement. The announcement. I pray that it would not just stop with you. Let's pray. Lord, we are dependent upon you. We need your power. The work ahead of us is far too great for us. Even the work of treasuring us. God, I pray that no one in this room tonight would hear this message and think, I just need to try harder. Because that's not the solution, God. The only way that we are equipped, the only way that, that fruit is produced from our lives is by you. By placing our faith and trust in you as Lord. And we ask that you would do that even to more tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed to small groups.